Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension. This is Naked Astronomy. Hello and welcome to Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. I'm Ben Valsler and each month I'll be bringing you the latest astronomical and cosmological news, meeting some of the world's finest space researchers and tackling your cosmic questions. This month we'll be hearing about newly discovered extrasolar planets as well as how researchers have identified the first direct spectrum of light from a giant extrasolar planet. I get really excited about this because it's the next development in characterising these planets and it's also proof of concept that we can determine what molecules are in what atmospheres of planets around other stars, even though they might be 130 light years distance from Earth. So I think the potential for understanding how planets form and ultimately whether they might be habitable is very exciting. Plus, the group in California who've reported unprecedented numbers of double black hole galaxies, the shape of our dark matter halo, and how the sleepy sun may be waking up. Also, I'll be speaking to supernova super spotter Tom Bowles to find out how he hunts down exploding stars with amateur equipment, and how his backyard patrolling helps to direct the world's telescopes. And one of the things that keeps you motivated as a patroller is to actually see the, the other things that people have done with your supernovae. I mean, I think just about every telescope in the world has followed them up at one time or another. The two big kecks have, have followed up and done work on it, and the Hubble have done work on it. And it's really quite motivating to, to see so much activity coming about because of something that you've discovered. And I'll be finding out about the Forks Telescope Project, a pair of professional telescopes made available to British schoolchildren for them to observe the night sky without having to leave the classroom. They're research class instruments. These are, these are instruments that you're perfectly capable of doing research-grade astronomy on. Certainly in terms of accessing sort of educational resources, these are the biggest telescopes available to the education community that we're aware of in the world. All this and we answer your questions on black holes, stars and what it's like to live on Venus. So if you've got any questions, feedback or comments for us, let us know by emailing astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. 
And now we join our expert panel to catch up with the latest news in astronomy and cosmology. We'll be hearing from Andrew Ponson, researcher at the Kavli Institute for Cosmology, and from Carolyn Crawford, astronomer at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. But first we hear from Dominic Ford, who works in Cambridge University's Cavendish Laboratory. So on the 4th of January, NASA announced that the Kepler Space Telescope had discovered its first five extrasolar planets. These are planets orbiting about stars other than our own sun. Now, Kepler is rather different from most telescopes that you might be familiar with because it doesn't move around the sky. It's just pointing at one fixed part of the sky in the constellation of Cygnus. And it's been pointing in that direction ever since it started doing science in May 2009. And it's going to carry on doing so for the next six years. And the reason why it's doing that is that it wants to measure the brightness of about 100,000 stars in that part of the sky extremely precisely and then watch them to see whether they change and it can detect changes as little as 0.002%. The idea is that if one of these stars has an Earth-like planet orbiting around it, then that planet might from time to time pass in front of the star if the solar system is orientated edge-on to our line of sight. And as that planet obscures some of the star's light, we would see that star get slightly dimmer. Now, in order to be sure of its results, Kepler needs to detect each planet passing in front of its parent star three times. It needs to see three dips in the star's brightness. Obviously, the Earth takes a whole year to go around the Sun. And so before Kepler can discover any Earth-like planets, it needs to have been observing for at least three years. So at this early stage in the mission, only six months in, it could only detect planets with very short periods. And of course, that is what we've seen in these first five planets that Kepler has seen. They all orbit every few days around their parent stars. So these are not very Earth-like yet. However, these discoveries do show that the Kepler spacecraft is working very well and that in the next few years we can really hope to see some quite exciting discoveries from it. So there's a lot of ifs there in order to actually find something, but these are quite tantalising, but of course they'll be far too close to their parent star to be anything like Earth. Yes, most of these planets are what are called hot Jupiters. They are very large compared to the Earth. I think they range between 4 and 16 times the radius of the Earth. And they are very close into their parent stars, so very hot. There's certainly no life on any of these planets discovered so far. Well, it's good to see that it's working, that the science is actually doing its trick, and we are starting to discover these things. It'll be very interesting to see what it discovers in the coming years. But staying with these extrasolar planets, Carolyn, you've got some news for us. Well, the interesting thing is the next step, beyond what Dominic's just been describing about how you find the planets, I mean, we know of at least 420 planets around other stars now. We can characterise something about their mass, maybe their temperatures, how far they orbit from their host star. But the next step is to find out more about the planet itself. And the way we can do that is looking at the light that is reflected and emitted by that planet. And there's been a very recent uh, announcement that some astronomers have obtained the first direct spectrum of the light from a planet orbiting a star very like our own sun. Now, this is actually quite tricky to do because you have to realise the light from the planet is incredibly faint compared to that of the star. So it's absolutely swamped by the starlight and the planet's also too close to the star, really, to be able to isolate the light. Usually you can only do it if the planet's eclipsed by the star and so you've got the the light from the star, star plus planet, you subtract the two. 
Well, this is the first time they managed to isolate the light from the planet by itself. In itself, that's a huge achievement. But then they've analysed the spectrum of this light. And it's not just reflected light, but stamped on that spectrum, you've got features from any molecules within the planet's atmosphere. And so we can tell something more about the atmosphere of the planet. So this has been done for one of three giant planets that orbit the star HR8799. And that's a star that's very much younger than our sun. It's only about 60 million years old. It's slightly more massive. It's about five times more luminous. And as Dominic was saying, these don't resemble planets anything like our own Earth. They're orbiting much further away from the host star. They're much more massive. The one that they've analysed, it's about 10 times the mass of Jupiter. It's a lot hotter than the Earth. It's about 800 degrees. However, they're able to tell us that there is methane and carbon monoxide and other properties of its atmosphere. I get really excited about this because it's the next development in characterising these planets. And it's also proof of concept that we can determine what molecules are in what atmospheres of planets around other stars, even though they might be 130 light years distance from Earth. It's amazing to think that just from the light that's reflected or emitted by this planet, we can start to determine things about the chemistry that goes on on the surface, the climate, what's actually happening in the atmosphere. It's really quite amazing that we can infer so much from such a relatively small amount of information. Ah, but this is the the trick of the trade for astronomers. All we have ever to deal with is the light from distant objects. We can't put a star or a planet in the laboratory and test it. Okay, we could test it on the computer, we can model it. But the data we have to work with outside of our own solar system, all we have is how we analyse that light. And astronomers and scientists are very creative about using that light and extracting the most information from it. Now, this has all stemmed from reports given at the AAS, the American Astronomical Society, which was a fairly recent event. Uh, Andrew, I believe you also have some news from there. Yes, absolutely. The stuff that caught my eye was more to do with galaxies. Now, galaxies uh, in the universe today, they're collections of something like 100 billion stars, and we live in one, it's the Milky Way, but the universe is actually crammed full of galaxies. There's something like 100 billion galaxies in the universe today. Now, the universe wasn't born full of galaxies. They, They had to come from somewhere. And in fact, what we think is that the first generation of galaxies were, by our standards today, were very tiny. They would have something like a billion times the mass of the sun in dark matter. Now, that might sound like a lot, but uh, galaxies today, like our own galaxy, would have something like um, a trillion, that's one with 12 zeros after it, times the mass of the sun in dark matter. So they started very tiny, and then over time, what happens is that they kind of join up, like almost like corporations merging. You know, they get bigger and bigger uh, just by uh, joining together. But we're always looking for more clues about exactly how this is happening and the details of, of what's going on inside. One of the interesting results came out actually related to black holes. Now, it turns out that perhaps all or certainly a lot of galaxies have enormous black holes at their centre. We do actually see the black holes. And the reason for that is that as they suck in matter from around them, the matter that's being sucked in gets really, really hot. And before it actually gets into the black hole, it shines very brightly because it's so hot. Now, if it's the case that galaxies actually merge in this way, then you'd expect that if they've just merged, 
there would be maybe two black holes because eventually what we think happens is that the two black holes from the original two galaxies do merge together themselves. But there should be a sort of intermediate step where you have one galaxy and two black holes. To date, uh, to my knowledge, there's only been something like four or five galaxies seen in the universe where we're pretty sure there are actually two black holes. But um, a study that was announced at this AAS meeting from the University of California, it was led uh, by a scientist called Julia Comerford, has announced finding 32 double black holes uh, using uh, data from a survey called the Deep 2 survey, which was conducted on, on the Keck 10-metre telescope. Now, a completely different announcement that also caught my eye, but kind of relates to the same stuff, is about what we call the dark matter halo of our own Milky Way. If it's the case that galaxies kind of grow by merging in this way, then there's no reason why that process would have stopped today. And in fact, we do see direct evidence that it's carrying on today in the form of what we call satellite galaxies of our own Milky Way. So we see the stars in our own galaxy, but we also see very nearby smaller galaxies that are kind of falling in towards our galaxy and are about to merge with it. What this study, which was by David Law, also at the University of California, was looking at was the kind of path that these satellite galaxies are taking on their way in to merge with our own galaxy. And by looking at that, they can find out something about the way that the dark matter in our own galaxy is distributed because the way in which the stuff is falling in depends on the gravity, and the gravity in turn depends on the dark matter. And it turns out that the dark matter around our galaxy is distributed in a sort of squashed thing. It, might, it looks almost like a sort of rugby ball, but maybe even uh, more squishy than that. And that's quite a surprise. It, maybe it conflicts with previous findings. So this is also interesting, but I think it's going to take a while to sort out the details and find out what's really going on here. So as Andrew just mentioned, studying satellite galaxies can tell us a great deal about the structure and things like dark matter in our own galaxy and other galaxies out there. Dominic, there were more reports about satellite galaxies and what we can learn from them. Yes, indeed. A team at the University of Washington, uh, led by Ben Williams and his collaborators, have recently released an image of the galaxy NGC 2976 using the advanced camera surveys on the Hubble Space Telescope. This is a galaxy which is close to a very big neighbour called M81 and we think that the mass of this very big neighbour is stirring up the gas in the smaller NGC 2976. Now as this gas is being stirred up, people think that it's collapsing down to form stars at quite prodigious rates. Now this team have looked at the stellar populations in this galaxy and they've been trying to work out exactly how old they are, how long this process has been going on and how this galaxy has been responding to this stirring. And what they think is that, comparatively recently, it started forming stars at this tremendous rate, but just recently it's run out of gas, and it stopped forming stars. And this is very interesting, because we think a lot of stars in the universe are formed through interactions between galaxies and this stirring effect. And by looking at examples like this in the nearby universe, we can really understand how this process works. So now that this galaxy has sort of used up all of its gas, it's turned it all into stars, what do we expect to happen to it in the future? Is it fully mature now? Will it not do much else? I think this galaxy's career in star formation is certainly over. 
it's got no more gas left to put into stars, its structure will be quite heavily distorted by the gravitational influence of M81. It may even merge in and become part of that galaxy or become what we call a, a globular cluster, which is a tight knot of stars orbiting around another galaxy. I'll have a career in star formation. I'll have one of those, yes. <laughs> Some of these names are quite hard to comprehend and obviously they're a very long way away. This is very interesting from a case of how the universe forms and how galaxies form. Carolyn, could you bring us a bit closer to home? Yeah, I'll bring us right back to our solar system and indeed to our own sun. And there are interesting possibilities just as of about mid-January that the sun might be getting a little bit more back to normal again. Because over the last few years, it's not really been behaving as we expect. There's a whole cycle of activity within the sun that follows this 22-year cycle of variation. And that's driven by what's going on deep in the core of the sun, the magnetic activity. And it affects things like the sun's atmosphere, flares that can erupt from the sun, send highly charged particles out into space. And also there's a much more visible manifestation of this activity, which is the presence and the number and the distribution of what are known as sunspots on its surface. These are large, slightly cooler regions on the sun that appear as dark spots. But astronomers trace what the sun's doing by the distribution number of sunspots. And so it goes through cycles of maximum numbers and minimum numbers every 22 years. The problem is... We've been expecting to climb out of a minimum in the cycle probably about two years ago. And yet for the last two years, there's been a complete dearth of sunspots on the sun's disk. It's been the deepest and the calmest minimum for over a century. However, it now looks like it may be climbing out of this minimum. Mid-January, a large sunspot has been observed. It's the largest in a long while. And the sun has also experienced the strongest solar flare we've seen for about two years. So watch this space. What's the relationship between the sun's activity in this regard and, and what we experience down here on Earth? I know that with solar flares, we, we see the effects in the atmosphere occasionally and certainly at the auroras. But what difference does it make to us? Well, we're fairly safe on Earth because the Earth has got a very strong magnetic field that can deflect these charged particles when they come near us. And that's partly what creates the aurora when these interact with the atmosphere. It has strong implications for satellites out in space, communications, even if there are astronauts out in the space station, if we have really large flares. I mean, that's one reason for monitoring the sun. For astronomers... Just being able to trace what's going on inside the sun, it gives us clues about the internal structure, how it's evolving, how it's changing, how it's behaving, and on what time scales. And it's providing very important data for us to compare to the theoretical models and the computer models of the internal structure of stars like the sun. So that's what's caught your eye this month. But looking back over the last few shows, do we have any updates? What's been going on on the stories that we've heard about before? Now, back in November, we talked about the WISE space telescope that has just released its first images. There's no great science yet, but everything's working well, and it's a space to watch. Well, it's good to know that it's, it's definitely working. We've got first light on it, we've got first images. That's fantastic. Anything else? Well, I think uh, Dominic was telling us last time about the Spirit rover, which is this rover on Mars that's stuck in the mud, and it caught my eye that uh, NASA put out an announcement that they've decided to try... Uh, going into reverse gear, running running the wheels backwards. And as a result, it's now 3.5 centimetres south of where it was two months ago. Uh, so that counts as progress on Mars, I think. A small amount of progress, but progress nonetheless. <laughs> Carolyn? Well, just actually looking towards the next month or so, there's 
Little Phoenix, the lander on Mars, has been weathering through the Arctic winter on Mars. We haven't heard anything from it from November 2008. And it's highly unlikely that it will have survived. It wasn't designed for that. But the space orbiters that are currently going around Mars are beginning to listen out just in case, just in case it's got enough power for a signal and it might still be alive. There's no squeak from it yet. I would love to think that it might wake up and we may still be able to get some images from this little lander near the North Pole of Mars. So fingers crossed that Phoenix will rise, not from the ashes, but from the frozen wasteland. That was Carolyn Crawford, and before her, Andrew Ponson and Dominic Ford, with a roundup of space science news. They'll be back later on in the show to tackle your questions. Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this programme, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Still to come, we'll be hearing from record-holding supernova spotter Tom Bowles about how to find exploding stars. But first, the Fawkes Telescope Project provides British schoolchildren with an opportunity to see the stars up close by offering them time on a professional research-quality telescope, all for free. Fraser Lewis, a post-grad student at Cardiff University and one of the Fawkes Telescope team, explains a bit more. Well, there are actually two telescopes at the moment. There's Fawkes Telescope North and Fawkes Telescope South. They're both optical two-metre class telescopes. One is in Hawaii and the other is in Australia. The thinking behind that was when the project was originally set up, we were looking at trying to inspire school children mainly, but really any, any educational group, to get involved in astronomy. So they were set up to involve British schools initially The thinking behind their locations, aside from the fact that they're very good locations astronomically, is that they're on the other side of the world in terms of the time difference. So we're actually able to access those telescopes during the British school day. How many schools is this available to? Is this working with a particular school, or are you trying to work with as many schools as possible? It's available at the moment free of charge to any UK school, irrespective of their their location, irrespective of their, their status. So any UK school is able to get involved, is able to take observations or is even able to download other people's observations and do their own work on the data. This sounds incredible. We we certainly never had anything like this when I was at school and I think I would have really enjoyed it. How long has it been running? It's been running in uh, its current form for about five years or so. So we've been allowing schools to access these telescopes for about the last four or five years. Not only is it free of charge, but they access it over the internet. So they basically have a username and a password, and away they go. They are not moderated in the sense that we don't tell them what they can and can't look at. We give them suggestions of types of astronomical objects that they might want to image, partly because they're part of a science program we're running or partly because they're just pretty objects. But we don't actually make any stipulation as to what they can and can't do with their time on the telescope. So it's not just a clever ploy to get school teachers and school children to do some of your research for you? That accusation has been aimed at me at the past, actually. It's not quite that clever, no. We were, that is a nice little byproduct of what is happening. Where we have done that, we have published papers in, in journals such as Monthly Notices and the Astrophysical Journal. Those schools have been credited in the acknowledgements for the work they have done, but it's not that cynical a ploy, no, I promise you. <laughs> so what mm-hmm. sorts of things do they look at? Many of the schools will go with the objects that they're familiar with or that the teachers are familiar with. And we find a lot of the observing groups are led by astronomy clubs within the schools. So we often have teachers 
who already have an interest in astronomy, perhaps they did their PhD through astronomy in the first place. Most of them tend to start off with the fairly easy objects. So they'll go for the likes of M1, the Crab Nebula, M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy. They will look at uh, open clusters, planetary nebulae. They can look at supernova remnants. And they have the full range of optical filters, so they can make colour pictures as well. And if somebody were to try and do this on their own, how much would it be likely to cost for, say, a school to buy a telescope in order for their astronomy (laughs) club to do this? The two-metre telescopes that we run, which are the main part of the network at the moment, they both cost about £5 million. That's the figure you're looking at as a bottom line before you start developing the software and and running all the, the systems in real time as well. That's quite a long way out of most schools' budgets, I would think. I would imagine so, yes. <laughs> Even amateur telescopes and so on would be a great start for a school, but this is in mm-hmm. a completely different league. This is, absolutely. I mean, the two-metre telescopes originally are, are I mean, they're, they're research-class instruments. These are, these are instruments that you're perfectly capable of doing research-grade astronomy on. They're not the biggest optical telescopes in the world. Obviously, clearly, that you know, we have 10-metre and 4-metre-class telescopes that are a lot bigger. But certainly in terms of accessing sort of educational resources, these are the biggest telescopes available to the education community that we're aware of in the world. Some might argue that as you have this equipment, it really should be put towards science itself. So all of the observation time should go towards researchers like yourselves rather than helping school children. Why is school education such a priority for this project? Initially when it was set up, it was set up by a guy called Dill Falks, hence the name Falks Telescope. He was very concerned that maybe science and maths, particularly physics and and especially astronomy, aren't taught that well in schools, that there isn't time within the curriculum to teach astronomy that well. What he wanted to do was inspire pupils, and he'd come from a background where he'd, he'd been inspired at an early age through astronomy, and he wanted to sort of put his money where his mouth is, put some money into a project that would then inspire children, inspire school pupils to, to go out and observe the night sky and to understand a bit more about science and a bit more about computing and a bit more about maths. So he was very keen that they did that. And we've certainly seen an uptake of an awful lot of schools who've been able to take their observations, understand what they're doing, and school children are then going on to, to choose physics, choose astronomy at higher levels. So I think that's the spin-off that we're seeing, that we, we can't really put a quantity on. We don't really have, have numbers, but we're certainly seeing you know, a good take-up of, of uh, interested school pupils that, in that direction. Well, that's certainly very generous of him, and it's obviously not all about financial gain. What's the, the next step for it? How long is it going to run? We uh, are currently sourcing funding for, to carry on the project with the two-metre telescopes, but we have very exciting plans. We're part of a bigger group now, so our original benefactor sold the project on a couple of years ago, sold the telescopes on, I should say, to an American group called LCOGT, Las Cumbres Observatory Global Telescope. And these guys are based in uh, Santa Barbara in California, and their plans are to develop this network. So at the moment we have these two telescopes, one in each hemisphere on either side of the world, as it were, and their plan is to develop a network of around about another 40 or so telescopes. Now, these extra 40 are not the same size as, as the original two telescopes. These are smaller 1-metre and 0.4-metre telescopes. So a 0.4-metre telescope is of a similar size to, to a, you know, the regular amateur telescopes that we see. What the Americans are intending to do is locate these 40 telescopes in a series of different sites around both the northern and southern hemispheres. And by doing this, what they create is 
effectively an all-Earth telescope. You have a telescope or you have a series of telescopes that are in the dark at any point of the day or night. At the moment, if something happens in astronomy, sometimes like a supernova, we need to be on that supernova within an hour or two hours. We need to get a look at that supernova as soon as we can. And, of course, we're waiting for it to go night again in Hawaii or to become night again in Australia. When we have this bigger ring of telescopes, we'll always have a telescope or a series of telescopes that are in the night sky ready to observe. So we'll be able to follow up these observations much more rapidly. And obviously, instead of having two telescopes, having 40 telescopes allows us to offer an awful lot more telescope time to the general public and to to schools in particular. So even more children could have the opportunity to use world-class observing equipment to take their first glimpses out into space. And who knows, this could well be the inspiration for the next generation of astronomers. That was Fraser Lewis from Cardiff University and the Fawkes Telescope Project. Even if you don't have access to £5 million worth of telescope, you can still help to shape the direction of astronomical research. Tom Bowles is a retired computer engineer, vice president of the British Astronomical Association, and a supernova hunter extraordinaire. He's discovered more supernovae than any other individual in the world. So I asked him how he first got into astronomy. First getting into astronomy started probably at school. I was very lucky in that one of my friends at school brought in a a very small three-draw naval refractor into the school and I had the opportunity to look at Venus and the Pleiades through it and after that I was just hooked you know at that age to see something like that through a telescope was just mind-boggling so I wanted to find out more and I just read up on it and I've been there ever since. But it wasn't something you thought of as following as a career? No, it's not something that I thought about following as a career. I come from Glasgow, Scotland, obviously, from the accident, but um, my sort of family background and the, the economic conditions in Glasgow um, really prevented me from going to university at the time. I do have a degree now, but it happened very much later in life as a mature student. So your degree was in computer science, I guess? My degree was in biochemistry. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And do you think that doing a science degree even not at all an astronomical one, also helped you with the amateur astronomy side of things? I think it does. What it does, it helps you to um, look at your data a lot more critically and it lets you know how to handle data and it gives you a very practical outlook at exactly what you can achieve with the instrumentation that you have. Speaking of which, what instruments do you now use? I use three 14-inch McCassigan telescopes and they are sitting on three paramount robotic mounts. The whole three, the three systems are identical, both in sub-aperture and focal length, and I use the same model of camera on each of them. I use Aperture AB7s. They're not the best cameras in the world for taking pretty pictures, but they're extremely sensitive to very low light conditions. So that's what makes them very, very suitable for searching for supernovae. You have quite a reputation for being someone who's very good at finding them. But how do you spot a supernova? Spotting a supernova is not particularly difficult. What you do is you're looking at an image that you've taken and you compare it with a library image that you've taken perhaps two or three years previously. And you're just looking for something different. And with a bit of luck, you'll probably see another sort of a new star sitting in the field uh, very close to the galaxy. And then you start to suspect that might be a supernova. Of course, there, there are a lot of tests that you need to do before you can actually come to that conclusion. You need to check out all the asteroids that maybe are in that field, all the minor planets that are in that field at that given time. You can get problems with variable stars and camera blindness. You get noise in the camera. 
So once you, you've eliminated all of those and you've taken more than one image of the, the, the suspect, perhaps, or ideally over two different nights, then you start to become confident it's a supernova. How many supernovas have you spotted so far? I spotted 127 supernovas so far, wow. um, which is uh, <laughs> quite a record. I mean, there, there are sort of teams around that have discovered a lot more than that, obviously some of the professional teams in the States. But as an individual, I believe, as far as I know, I do have this sort of record, if you like, for the number of supernovae discovered by an individual. The previous record holder was the late Fritz Zwicky, the very um, idiocratic um, Swiss astronomer, and he had a record of 123. And so I passed that number in August of this year, so things are still looking good and they're still coming. (laughs) You must be very proud, but once you've identified a supernova, what's next? Who do you pass that information to and, and what can they do with it? Right, what I do then is I pass it to the Central Bureau of Astronomical Telegrams and I pass it to them in a very rigid format. It's important, I never report supernova, I always report an apparent supernova because it's not supernova until actually it's confirmed and somebody else has taken an individual independent image of it and hopefully a spectrogram is also taken of it. So I, I report in a very given format I, I need to tell, tell them the galaxy name, I need to tell them the location in the sky, and I need to give them that measurement in two different nights. And if the reading is different by more than, say, half an arc second over the two nights, sometimes that means imaging in a third night to clarify that. Because you obviously are very good at spotting them, do people use your data to learn more about supernova themselves? Oh, very much so. One of the things I try to do with my patrolling is to try and get the, the supernovae on the rise, if I can do. That's the time when they're valuable, because you can measure the rise time, and you can also measure the, the peak brightness of the supernova at its maximum. Uh, and one of the things that keeps you motivated as a patroller is to actually see the, the other things that people have done with your supernovae. I mean, I think just about every telescope in the world has followed them up at one time or another. You know, the, the two big kecks have, have followed up and done work on it, and the Hubble have done, has done work on it. And it's really quite motivating to, to see so much activity coming about because of something that you've discovered. It's wonderful to think that these very expensive, very precise, very high-technology telescopes, things like the Hubble, rely on people like yourself spending a couple of different nights with accessible equipment to spot the things that they really need to look at. I think you really need to think what the two types of telescope are doing, and and it's really chalk and cheese. The economics of what I'm doing uh, is completely different from the economics of a, a major professional telescope. There's no way a major professional telescope could really afford the time that I've got with my three little telescopes to look for these supernovae. I can do it because I'm not burdened down with having to justify what I do in my telescopes. I, I don't need to sort of go to a time allocation team and say, you know, can I look at Cygnus tonight or something like that. I just go and do it if that's what I want to do. It's because the telescopes are smaller that I'm able to do it. You tell a very inspirational story, but what would you say, what advice would you have for people who are hoping to get into amateur astronomy? The, the advice would be to, to start very basically and don't go buying um, silly big expensive telescopes like I've done. Somebody who goes into astronomy for the very first time, I'd recommend to, to buy a very good high quality set of binoculars. And the big advantage of that, of course, is in a year or two years' time, if you suddenly decide astronomy is not for you, then um, 
you've got an expert pair of binoculars that you can use for other things. Very true. You could possibly take up bird watching. You could take up bird watching very, very easily, yes. <laughs> and specifically, if you have somebody who perhaps is already into astronomy and they want to start looking for supernovae, what should they be doing? Well, again, there's a lot of things that you can do in supernovae optically rather than buying the expensive cameras that I've bought. If we, if we look at the, the size of the galaxies in the sky, there's a whole of the Metzier catalogue, which I think has been greatly neglected by people like myself. We're using medium-sized telescopes and cameras with very small chips on them. And you just can't get, get some of the big Metzia galaxies in there. I mean, the silly example would be M31. If I was to try and patrol M31 properly for supernovae, I would need to take something like 25, 30 images to cover the whole galaxy. So basically, I don't do it. So if someone is thinking of doing it, just get hold of a good quality telescope and do it visually. And, you know, the inspiration for doing that really comes from the, the Reverend Bob Evans in Australia, and he has discovered, I forget his latest figure, the 6065 supernovae, uh, just looking at the sky and looking at it visually. So you, you can make a big impact there. And it's a whole niche in the market today that's been missed. So grab yourself a telescope and start spotting supernovae. That was Tom Bowles, who has identified more supernovae than any other person in the world. Quite an inspiration. This is Naked Astronomy, a space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. We want to hear from you about what you'd like to see included in this podcast, and we would love to have you asking your own questions. So if you want to hear yourself on Naked Astronomy, or if you've got an interesting space science observation or an experience to share with us, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But now we return to Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic to take on your space science questions. Firstly, Robert Smith would like to know why point light sources, such as stars, actually appear in pictures as a cross shape. Well, this is when you look at some of these beautiful astronomical images. The stars don't look like exact points of light, but instead they've got the sort of cross shape around them. And the key thing is, is that you don't see this, or at least you shouldn't see this when you look at them with the unaided eye, it's actually an artefact that comes from the light travelling through a reflecting telescope. So this is the kind of telescope that most modern optical telescopes are. And you have a wide mirror that sits at the back of the telescope tube and that collects all the light that enters the telescope from the, the opening at the other end. And it reflects that light to a smaller second mirror which will then direct it out to the side or back to where your eye or your camera receives it. The catch is that little second mirror has to sit above the main mirror and across the opening to the telescope. And it's suspended in place there by little support vanes or struts. And it's these struts that affect the light and cause this cross effect. Because as the light enters the telescope, we say it's diffracted around these veins. It basically means it's slightly deflected as it passes near those support structures. So the light from the star ends up getting scattered away from its original destination point and gets distributed into this cross-like pattern that we call diffraction spikes. It can actually be very annoying for astronomers. If you've taken a beautiful image, you've got a very bright star in your image. These diffraction spikes, if they spread out, can sometimes obscure the light from something very much fainter and potentially a lot more interesting. So is it possible, knowing how they're created, to, to model your way around it? Can you work out how much of that light you can detract from your image and try and correct it? 
You can correct for it for a certain extent or attempt to, but you do have to worry that if you manipulate the data too much, you might be introducing new artefacts. And again, how much you might trust the signal of anything that was hidden by these spikes probably isn't a very safe thing to base a, your scientific career on. But it might just be a nice way to make them look a bit prettier. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> Either that or you observe objects that don't have any stars in the field, so it's not a problem. Fair enough. Andrew, we've had another question. I think this is fascinating, although quite impractical. Uh, but Sophie Seifert Graham would like to know if you could make a mobile phone call from inside a black hole. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't think that's impractical at all. It'd be the, you'd want to make a mobile phone call as you uh, travel towards your final resting place. Uh, but unfortunately, no. You you couldn't make a mobile phone call, but maybe you could um, receive a text message. Well, I'll, I'll come back to that. The way that mobile phones work is they use radio waves to send your voice to the recipient. Now, radio waves are just a form of light, and the main property of a black hole is that light can't get out of it, and, and that's why the black hole is black of itself. So uh, there's no way for you to send any information using radio waves outside the black hole. But light can get into black holes. Similarly, radio waves can get into black holes. So if you specially adapted your phone, it should be possible to make it uh, receive text messages from outside. So you could get final messages in, but not out. So sadly, you wouldn't be able to say goodbye. You wouldn't. <laughs> Dominic, we've had... Uh, two questions here that are related. Um, the first one is from Randall in Houston in Texas. He wants to know what condition the spacecraft that landed on Venus would be in by now. They'll be in pretty poor shape by now. By my counting, 10 landers landed on Venus between 1975 and 1985. They were all built to a broadly similar design. But the environment that they descended into was extremely hostile. The surface temperature on Venus is 450 degrees centigrade which is hot enough to melt tin or lead, and that includes the solder that you might use in electronics. The surface pressure on Venus is 90 to 95 times the pressure on Earth. And added to that, the atmosphere contains concentrated sulfuric acid, which is obviously very corrosive. So I was thinking about what effect that environment would have on these landers, and they used various methods to keep them cool while they were operating on the surface, they were pre-refrigerated when they separated from the orbiting spacecraft above and they used radiator systems to circulate fluid between the temperature-critical parts of the, the landers and a lump of lithium salt in the middle, which, which acted as a heat dump. But obviously that would have lasted for a few hours and then the electronics will almost certainly have melted. The titanium hull will probably have survived for some time but I think after 40 years, probably that titanium would be starting to succumb to that sulfuric acid. So I suspect there's very little left. So certainly not a very hospitable environment. Did we get some good science out of them while they were working? We certainly got some pictures and we got temperature measurements from the surface, which we didn't have. We didn't know these figures of 450 degrees C and 100 atmospheres pressure before these landers were on the surface. The other question we have is from Steve, and he says that he's had a hypothesis for a while now that Venus is in fact Earth in the future. Now, I don't think he literally means there's been some time travel and Earth has been moved closer to the sun, but I think what he means is that our future on Earth could look a bit like Venus. He says he's been called a doom-monger and a pessimist, among other things, but he'd like to know how feasible that might actually be. 
are we likely to end up being like Venus? Well, let's certainly hope not. We probably have some reason to be confident that it won't happen any time soon. Going back a bit, Venus is a fascinating planet because in many ways it's a twin of the Earth. It's a bit nearer to the Sun, but it's not actually that much nearer to the Sun than us. It's a bit smaller than the Earth, but it's not that much smaller. And the two planets are made of broadly similar chemical compositions. So on the face of it, you might expect the two planets to have quite similar climates. And 50 years ago, before we actually went to Venus, that's what a lot of people were expecting. Mariner 2, of course, in 1962, when it flew past Venus, told a very different story. And ever since then, a recurring theme of research into Venus's atmosphere has been trying to ask how Venus turned out so differently from the Earth. What is causing this planet to be so hot? And one of the first developments was when people realised that the greenhouse effect was so extreme on Venus and that that was causing these high temperatures. And we really had to be grateful that discovery was made when it was made because that then led people to ask whether the greenhouse effect was important on the Earth. And, of course, now we know that it is something that we need to worry about. The reason why we think Venus is so different is because it doesn't have oceans, unlike the Earth. The oceans on the Earth are a brilliant way of getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It dissolves in the water and eventually turns into solid rocks. And so most of the Earth's carbon is locked up in rocks. Venus, it seems, may have had oceans in its very early history, but doesn't anymore. And so the carbon dioxide has stayed in the atmosphere, giving it this very thick blanket-like covering of CO2. Now, interestingly, if you look at how much carbon is locked up in rocks on the Earth and imagine how much gas that would be equivalent to, it's actually almost exactly the same amount of gas as is in Venus's atmosphere. And that's a fascinating result because it really does underlie the fact that the two planets may have had a very similar starting point. Looking ahead, I think it's unlikely that the Earth will go back to being anything like Venus because we have had oceans for so long and most of this carbon dioxide is now locked up in the rocks. And so long as we have those oceans, I think our climate won't be quite as bad as Venus's. If we ever do lose our oceans, we may have a lot to worry about. But as long as the oceans are with us, we won't be quite as bad as Venus. So we have our oceans to thank for keeping us safe. Speaking of Earth, Carolyn, this is a question from Kevin McCrowan, who wants to know that if the Earth's rotation is slowing, and perhaps you could tell us why Earth's rotation would be slowing, how long is it likely to be until a year actually lasts 366 days? So yes, the Earth's rotation is actually slowing, and it's to do with the oceans that we've just said that we're very thankful of. These oceans and the way that they move around the Earth, they're pulled around the planet by the gravity of the Moon, that ends up having a slight breaking effect on the rate that the Earth rotates. Because what happens is the Earth rotates slightly faster than the Moon travels in its orbit around the Earth. Therefore, it's rotating faster than the bulk of the oceans are being pulled around. You have a slight sort of twisting force on it that ends up with friction, and it all ends up breaking the Earth's rotation, making the day gradually longer but it's only happening incredibly slowly and the way we measure that rate well first of all you can look at computer simulations of what we think the earth was like when it first formed and we reckon you know so this is four and a half billion years ago the day was probably only about six hours long but I mean that's an estimate from a model you can also measure it by looking at the 
coral growth structures. And you can look at fossilized remains from either the early Devonian periods or Upper Cretaceous times. So that's when the length of the year was moving from about 400 days down to about 370 days. And even through human history, it's very interesting if you look at historical records of eclipses, you find sometimes the eclipse could not have occurred in that place at that time, you know, even whether it's in day or night, unless the day was shorter in the past. And so there are various lines of evidence that we can use to infer that the rate of breaking is only about one or two milliseconds per century. So not something we're likely to notice in our lifetime. Certainly not likely to uh, notice in our lifetimes, unless your lifetime is somewhere between about 60 and 120 million centuries. So it's not (laughs) an immediate effect. It is something that is still potentially measurable through these historical records, but it's very, very slow. We've had another question about the moon, actually, which has come from Maria. She says, in the southern hemisphere where I live, the crescent moon appears as a sea in the sky. But what about other places on Earth? At the equator, is it a U? Well, the phase of the moon, so whether or not it's it's a full moon, a half moon or a crescent, depends on the relative position of the sun and the Earth and the moon. But which way round you view that crescent, that's what depends on your latitude, your position on the Earth. So the moon moves in an orbit that's about 400,000 kilometres above the Earth's equator. The problem is that the Earth is a sphere. So observers in the northern and southern hemispheres are standing upside down relative to each other and they're looking at the moon from different directions. So if you're in the southern hemisphere, you're looking north to see the moon. If you're in the northern hemisphere, you're looking south. And so you're looking at the same crescent moon, but you're viewing it from completely different directions and your views are upside down from each other. So if you have a very young crescent moon, it's gradually growing to be a half moon and onto a full moon, that appears in the early evening. From the north, it'll have the lit part on the right, so it'll appear as a D-shape without the straight line or a backward C, whereas from the south, the same moon will be reversed and the lit part will be to the left, so it appears as a C-shape. What gets interesting, of course, is as you move from the northern to the southern hemispheres, your viewpoint of the moon changes. And there's a crossover point at the equator where the shape of the moon is neither right or left, is oriented much more like a dish or a boat with the horns of the crescent moon pointing upwards. So it's like a U-shape. And similarly, if you move away towards the poles, the more upright your C or your D-shapes for the crescent moons get. So it is, a, it is a very interesting idea about this viewpoint from the Earth onto the crescent moon. That's a really good question. I hadn't thought about it like that before. Thank you for your question, Maria. Andrew, we've had a question from Matthew who wants to know if the energy in the cosmic microwave background radiation, the CMBR, will actually be conserved over time. Well, that question leads us into lots of interesting physics. The short answer is no. The energy that's in this uh, background light that bathes the whole universe that comes from when the universe was very, very young will not be conserved. Let me give you two reasons why not. The first reason is the redshift effect. Now, as the universe expands... Each individual photon, which is just a packet of light, which has a certain wavelength, um, gets stretched along with the universe. And that means the wavelength of all these packets of light that make up the CMB are all getting longer. And as a result, the amount of energy in an individual packet is actually going down because the amount of energy depends on the wavelength. But 
If you've done physics, even at school, it might sound a, a really surprising thing because energy conservation is held up as this solid principle of physics and uh, what's happening here, where is that energy going? That leads us to the kind of second way of thinking about this. The question is, what, what really is energy conservation? Why do we expect energy to be conserved? And it turns out that one way of thinking about this is to do with what we call symmetries in physics. So let's think of something slightly different. This is momentum conservation. Now, momentum conservation is just a clever name for if you knock a pool ball across a pool table, it will carry on going in a straight line until it hits the edge, obviously. And the connection to what we call symmetry is that that pool table is flat, so one part of its surface is much like any other part of its surface. And it turns out that that gives you this property called momentum conservation that it just carries on going in a straight line. So, for instance, if you were to tip the pool table so it was on a slope and one end of it was uh, much higher than the other and then you throw your pool ball up it, then uh, momentum will no longer be conserved. You can imagine the ball will get slower and slower and then come back down again. Now, it turns out that energy conservation is a very similar idea, but it's about the symmetries in time rather than the symmetries in space. And the reason that energy is no longer conserved when you're talking about something like the cosmic microwave background is exactly because space is expanding with time. So the, what you expect to be the same from one time to the next, that symmetry, as we call it, is actually broken. Uh, and it's as a result of that broken symmetry that energy conservation just goes out the window and it no longer applies to something like the cosmic microwave background. Andrew Ponson there explaining how all is not as it seems when dealing with cosmology. He was joined by Carolyn Crawford and Dominic Ford to take on your cosmic queries. If you've got something for the panel to tackle, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com and do include a phone number if you would like to hear yourself on Naked Astronomy. That's all we have for this podcast. We'll be back soon with more space science news, interviews and questions. And if you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, you can find us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientist, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Listener.